The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, You are so gracious. You are such a loving and amazing God. What a privilege it is to draw near to You, knowing that when we draw near to You, that You will be right there waiting for us. Uh, And in fact, we would not have even had the inclination to draw near to You had You not first made Yourself available uh, to us by Your great Spirit. And so, Father, we come now trusting that You will be with us. And we pray, God, as we look at the life of St. Teresa of Avila, that You would um, draw Yourself close to us as You drew Yourself near to her. Uh, Make us uh, aware of Your presence. We pray, God, that our hearts would thrill, not to her, uh, but to You. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. Well, so we are going through a series uh, in Epiphany. Epiphany, of course, is a season of revelation, a great understanding, awakening. And I wanted to take a look at a few different saints. Uh, this one is the only one who's actually an official saint um, that I want to look at. But um, a, a saint, uh, folks who have gone before us, folks who have uh, been used by God for big, amazing, wonderful things. And so last week we took a look at Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And, uh, and saw he didn't really have an epiphany. He had a sort of series of, of epiphanies. And, and I don't know about you, but that's sort of, I feel the same way. I mean, there was a time where I, mean, I grew up in the church. I liked church. Uh, then there was a time where I didn't like church. And why would I ever come back to this place? And I did have a sort of conversion. But it was, I look back and I've had steps along the way, many steps, several and I would say about three different sort of conversion-style moments, uh, but just uh, times where the Lord has drawn me in. But just, I, f- I feel like sometimes, I've had this image for a long time in my head about Christian growth, that it's like a, it's like a, I don't know, multi-story building, and there's not stairs, but there's like a hole in, in, in the floor, the ceiling from each, each one, and you're like a bouncing ball on, on your level. And occasionally... That bouncing ball, you have a highs and lows, and occasionally you'll hit breakthrough uh, that that hole, and you'll get to the next level, and your uh, highs and lows there. And occasionally you'll hit it again on the way down and drop, and you're lower than you have been. Uh, but it is um, uh, it's interesting to look at the lives of these few saints that I have uh, selected that, that I just wanted to know about. I'm, I, I think I told you that sometimes I teach from what I know, but sometimes I teach because I want to learn, and, and that's really, a, uh, I, I'm sort of at the end. After two years, I'm sort of at the end of what I know. Um, so I, um, let's just be honest. And, uh, and so, uh, so I am uh, really wanting to, to stretch myself. I'm not a historian, so it's, it's, um, it's been uh, an education just to try to get into the lives of, of these folks. So, Today we want to take a look at St. Teresa of Avila. Now this is a stretch for me, uh, because you know that I don't look at Roman Catholic uh, saints very... I don't pray to the saints, I don't, I don't, that's just not my piety. I'm fine for folks who have that piety. I'm learning about it, um, but, I, uh, but it's just not been my experience. So, um, so to look at St. Teresa is important. Now of course I wanted to have some men and some women and uh, and because, but wow, what a remarkable woman uh, St. Teresa of Avila was. Just a great saint of God. And typical of great saints, she considered herself a great sinner. 
And uh, she did not consider herself to be a saint at all. All of the writings that we have, which are prolific, uh, that she gave, uh, her superiors made her write. That she, she wrote them under orders because she was so humble she did not want to, to write them. So, let me tell you a little bit about her, her background. And again, I, you know, if, I, if I can't fill 40 minutes of it, then that's okay. Uh, we, we'll, you'll be able to ask some questions. I'll have some thoughts. A lot of her life has made me, made me want to have some reflections on some other things. So, she was born March 28, 1515, uh, in uh, Avila. There's a province in Spain just west of Madrid. 1515. That means she was two years old when about uh, 400, maybe, maybe 600 miles uh, north and east of her, uh, a monk named Martin Luther was nailing 95 theses on the, on the door. Um, there was a lot going on ecclesiastically during her life. Like She grew up in it. She was a contemporary of John Calvin. Uh, she was, uh, would have been a contemporary of Thomas Cranmer. Uh, and yet, nothing you can find about her had any, uh, there was no influence there. The Reformation, the Continental Reformation, the English Reformation, none of those really had any influence in Spain because the Catholic Church was so much a part of the Catholic Church and the Muslims, the Moors. So, um, but she was a reformer. She just reformed, we'll talk about that a little bit, she just reformed from within the Catholic Church rather than uh, departing from it. So, so March 28, 1515, uh, born to a Catholic family of Spanish nobility. And like a good Catholic family, there were ten kids running around that house. <laughs> she was one of ten, but she, uh, I don't know if anybody who grew up in a house uh, uh, like that or, um, or down the street from a house like that, but this, uh, Teresa did not get lost in the shuffle. She had apparently just an effervescent, uh, wonderful, uh, magnetic personality. But she was always drawn to the church, even from a very early age, fascinated with the lives of the saints. Now you can imagine they didn't, I mean they had fiction back then and she loved stories, but it was almost all religious fiction. And then the stories they told were the true stories, the lives of of the saints. And so that was kind of what she was uh, in there, especially with a, a staunchly Catholic, very you know, stern father, um, but so drawn to the church and to the life of the saints was she that at age seven, this precocious girl and her brother Rodrigo uh, left the house to find martyrdom among the Moors. She, they, we figured, where can we go to get killed? Let's go to the Moors, uh, and um, and luckily her uncle. Um, saw them, he was returning to town and saw them running from uh, just outside the city walls, caught them and uh, dragged them by the ears back to, back to their family. And she was uh, saved, I guess, from, from martyrdom. Uh, but just, that was, that was what, that was who she, I mean, who, who among us has a child? We have a lot, a lot of us would have a seven-year-old to run away. But to run away in order to be uh, martyred uh, and to be sort of exalted and find themselves among the uh, wearing a white robe around the throne of Jesus is um, that's on another level. Um, so Teresa's mother died when she was 13 or 14 and this was devastating to her and uh, you know I don't have big books on my shelf that talk about Teresa of, of Avila but so I, the accounts I was able to find had different uh, differing accounts of what happened in that moment. Definitely devastating for her, but how did she handle that? 
uh, one of the accounts says she was particularly drawn to the Virgin Mary in that time and, uh, and really took her unto herself as, as her mother, uh, in a sense. Another account said that that was a time where she sort of drifted away from the church and found herself in delighting in more secular pursuits, as a teenage girl might. I don't know which one it was. It might have been both. I mean, if you look at your own life, I can look at my life and think, I carried, those, as a teenager particularly, I carried those pretty well together, um, my religious faith and my uh, secular pursuits. Um, I didn't see much of a, a dichotomy. Uh, well, I guess I did, but I ignored it. I ignored the, I ignored the gap there. So I don't know what your story is, but, but maybe both. But nevertheless, it's, at age 16, her father decided it was time for her to go to school at the Augustinian convent. And this was, he didn't send her uh, to, away to be a nun, uh, but he sent her for education at an Augustinian convent. And, um, and maybe it was because she was so bright and she, and she wanted to pursue her education as a good Catholic girl. Or maybe she needed a little reform and a little calming down in her life. I, I don't know. I don't know what it was. What I do know is that Teresa, as she grew older uh, and became very, very dedicated uh, in her faith, very, very uh, pious, very close to Jesus, that she looked back on her life uh, and, and considered herself uh, an amazing, uh, terrific sinner. Now, um, that may be in the eye of the beholder, because she was, um, uh, what, what I think of going wild as a, as a teenage girl, it's hard for me to imagine, even in the accounts that I, that I read uh, about Teresa getting into those things, because she just seemed like such a wonderful uh, kid at, at, as a young child. But uh, nevertheless, um, she was incredibly humble that Jesus would deign to, uh, to love one as her. Uh, anyway, that, that was... Uh, that's important. It's important for who she was. Uh, she was incredibly humble. So her father sent her away to the convent for her education, but against his wishes, a few years later, she became a nun. So he did not want that. And, and I don't know about you. I mean, I know I've certainly uh, known parents who wanted their kids to, to have religion that was going to be good for them. It was going to calm them down where they needed to calm them down. But don't go too far, right? Don't run, don't run away. Don't be a fanatic, you know. And this was, the, but how amazing. If he had gotten what he wanted, we wouldn't be talking about this today. Like God had other plans uh, for her. And, and you just think about your own life and about your kids' lives. And, and if, if, we, if we planned our lives out, our lives, I mean, the world would be incredibly different and, and much more boring or much more broken even than it is now. That God is in control and He's doing what He wants uh, with us in our lives. Did you, th- I-, I will tell you that I never in my wildest dreams, uh, and maybe against my wildest dreams, uh, pictured, and I take this the right way, but I never thought I'd be a Floridian, much less a priest, but I never thought I'd, I'd be a Floridian. I didn't care to, li- I mean, you know, I didn't, I grew up coming to the beach here and it was fine. There was a lot of traffic. I didn't, I didn't really think I wanted to be uh, a Floridian. I'm so glad to be here. I, you know, and it, I, I wasn't looking for this opportunity, and God, and God brought it. So uh, you just never know. If you, ha- if you follow your own plans, um, that, then your life would look one way. But if God gets a hold of you, it's going to look another. And that was certainly Teresa's experience. And, and much of her piety, much of her life, was constantly giving herself over and submitting herself 
to Christ and to Christ's ambassadors. She was incredibly submitted to her own confessor and her own superiors as a, as a nun. So she entered a Carmelite convent, the Carmelite convent of the Incarnation, uh, against her father's wishes. And yet, this was a convent that was known to be lenient. It was not a convent known for its high moral standards and strict asceticism or piety. Uh, They had relationships with uh, folks outside the convent, um, and they had possessions within the convent, and it just wasn't that strict. Um, Which initially suited young Teresa just fine. In fact, she was so... um, Precocious and bubbly and effervescent, that it, she became. It was uh, reported that she, it was sort of a fad among the aristocracy that they would come and visit. It looked good to go visit the the convent, right? But they wanted to ha- hang out with Teresa because she was so fun and probably uh, irreverent. I mean, probably just like you know, nothing's better than irre- an irreverent nun. Um, you know, um, I, I when I was uh, in CPE, which is clinical pastoral education. Uh, which is what you, uh, you have to do that before you're ordained, and it's uh, usually a hospital chaplaincy for two or three months. And my best friend there, I was I was in my um, I was 30 years old when I did that. My best friend was a 61 year old nun, uh, uh, Mother uh, Rosie, Sister Rosie, and she was fantastic. But one of the things I loved about her, she's just a little bit irreverent, um, and uh, it was it was great. So, um, but she was. Uh, Again, it was common for them uh, to come and visit her, but soon after she became a nun, so she's now in her early 20s, she became mysteriously and desperately ill. And she remained so for like 20 years. At one point, uh, at one point she was paralyzed in her legs from waist down for three years. Now, I don't know what you would do in, in, if, if such sickness came upon you. And some, for some of you, it may have. But she clung to Christ as best she knew how. And it, particularly in those three years of paralysis, she did a lot of reading. And, um, and she, read, she was always a reader. In fact, one of the things I, said, uh, I read about her said that um, during the Inquisition, she was uh, dismayed to find that all of her favorite titles had been um, had been banned by the Spanish Inquisition. But uh, but but she did a lot of reading again the li- the lives of the saints, um, a lot on the the religious and spiritual life uh, during those three years, and she really felt uh, closer than ever uh, to Jesus, but exhausted spiritually just exhausted, like she was trying hard but not getting nearly as far as she felt like she ought to. Um, And she got better. She didn't really consider it a miracle. I mean, it took 20 years. She certainly prayed. But she was so grateful for that time and yet still just spiritually just felt like she was um, walking in mud. You know how you're not getting far. It's a lot more work than it ought to be. And she, um, she returned to the convent, and she, uh, she still had only what she, that sort of mud. She still only felt like it was sort of a half-hearted uh, spirituality, a half-hearted um, devotion. And she was walking down the hallway of the convent, which, you know, she must have done hundreds of times before. And she, her attention was caught, like never before, by a statue of 
the wounded Christ. This is Christ being scourged before His crucifixion. And in that moment, she was struck by the depths and the pain of the love of Christ. She was overwhelmed with how, Je- how much suffering Jesus had endured and how He never took His eyes off the Father, even when the Father seemed silent. Remember on the cross, My God, My God, why have You forsaken Me? And, uh, and it was in that moment where, uh, one, as one author said, gently but powerfully, she said Jesus began to break down her defenses and to reveal to her the cause of her spiritual exhaustion. She became aware that even though she had given her life to the to religious life and committed herself uh, to Christ, that she, uh, that she still had defenses up against Him. There were still areas of her heart that she was holding back. And... Th- what Jesus revealed to her in that moment about the cause of her spiritual exhaustion, this author says, her dalliance with the delights of sin. Now, he doesn't go into, the author doesn't go into any of what that was. I can't, I can't begin to tell you what that was. But she was overcome with the reality of the gap between her heart and the heart of Christ. And overcome with, uh, with wonder and gratitude and devotion that Jesus would uh, cross that gap on her behalf. I just think that it's, again, it's just remarkable that she saw this statue that surely she had seen many times. There's nothing I saw that was a new statue that had been placed there. And how many times have you ever read a passage of Scripture or seen a piece of art or gone through the liturgy in our prayer book and it strikes you in a way that has never struck you before, and the Lord speaks to you in an incredible and moving and even converting way. I had a, a mentor when I was in high school uh, named Snooks Haley. Snooks was uh, about 90, and we had gotten paired up uh, in, a, in a program that just paired youth in the church with the, the elderly. And, um, and she was really cool, and I loved hanging out with her. I remember her telling me that she was converted at a stoplight. She came to a stop, and something in the, uh, the red light dr- stopping and the green light turning, like God just spoke to her. She said she was overcome with the presence of God. I'll never forget that. What an ordinary experience that God spoke to her. And I just wonder if you've had a, an experience like that. Something just incredibly ordinary, it, even that you've seen many, many times before that God uses in a moment uh, to speak. Again, the liturgy or the, um, a window in the church or something like that. If not, just ask the Lord. Be, be open. Be open. So, in that moment, she gave herself again. And this is what she would call her final conversion. And she gave herself again uh, to Christ. But her love for the saints continued, but really narrowed in focus to St. Augustine and Mary Magdalene. Now, think about Augustine. If you know about St. Augustine, St. Augustine, or St. Mary Magdalene, both had been great sinners. 
who experienced incredible, remarkable redemption. Mary Magdala was was a um, was a prostitute. Uh, she wept at the feet of Jesus, rubbed her rubbed uh, his his feet with her hair uh, at at the fact that he would forgive her. Remember, he, I think the scripture has seven demons he cast uh, out out of her. Um, and yet she was exalted as a as a wonderful saint. I don't believe any of the stuff that says they were married or anything. I, that, that's I don't think there's any need for or or truth to that. But um, but nevertheless, Teresa really found a lot of kinship with her, and Augustine, uh, who was uh, reputed as as a um, a wild man uh, for sure. Uh, his mother prayed for him and prayed for him and prayed for him, and finally. He came, he came to Christ in dramatic fashion and became one of the great theologians the church has ever had. Uh, has ever had. And so she found great. But she said that the, um, uh, it, did, it did concern her that once they were converted, they never fell. And she fell many, many, many times. Um, now, they probably would just say they fell many times. As you can say, to, and look at your own life and say you fell many times. Again, it was just an awareness uh, that she had with of her own sin and her need her need for Christ. Interestingly, that's something that she shared with her contemporary uh, Martin Luther. But only um, she 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 would not she would not uh, um, brag about that, and neither would he probably uh, at the uh, because they had such different ecclesiastical allegiances. So. Um, she, she wrote, I used to find great comfort in reading about the lives of saints who had been great sinners before the Lord brought them back to Himself. As He had forgiven them, I thought He could also forgive me. I never doubted His mercy, though I often doubted myself. If you haven't had... I, I, I re, it resonated with me. I, um, I have a... Um, I, try, I don't think... There's many times where I doubt His mercy, but I many times doubt, um, doubt myself. So, with her devotion to Christ ever deepening, she left this lenient um, convent, and she began her own reformation. Now, I saw that at this time, and I may be, I may be getting my history a little bit wrong here, but at, at, right around this time, Ferdinand and Isabella, who I think sent Christopher Columbus, isn't that right? Same folks. Uh, Isabella was a great reformer of the church. Ferdinand reform, was reforming the church for his, to line his pockets. Isabella was uh, reforming the church in her lands. They actually didn't, they were, it was a marriage that they, um, where they, because they, there was a marriage of lands not, and, and family, not, not a love marriage it seems. But she was reforming the church because she loved uh, the Lord and was a committed Catholic. And so it was really within that um, Within that environment that, that created that that um, Catherine, I mean, I'm sorry, Teresa was able to to reform, and she started uh, somewhere one account 14, one account 17 different uh, reformed Carmelite convents. They called them discalced, and uh, I I don't know if that's the Spanish or if that's a sort of anglicized word, but it means um, barefoot or uh, walking around without shoes, because. Again, her, reforma- her reformation was not doctrinal. Uh, it was a reformation of, of piety. And she partnered with another uh, saint. Actually, she came across several folks who would be saints, but um, her most significant partnership was uh, St. John of the Cross, which you may have heard of. Uh, and with him, it helped to establish monasteries for men uh, as well. 
And so she is the only person in the history of the church who has founded both women's and men's monastic orders. Found that interesting. Um, so again, she's reforming. She's not calling people to a change of doctrine. Uh, she is completely fine with the prayer to the saints and the rosary and the uh, with the Pope and his authority and all of this. Um, but she is reforming people's piety, calling them to a higher devotion, calling them to a serious commitment uh, to simplicity. She never lost her um, she never lost her sense of humor, but um, but she was incredibly. Um, devoted and called others to. In fact, at the end of her life, there were 5,000 women in her convents and, um, and some 600, 700 men uh, in the others. Um, Teresa is known, as she continued in her uh, establishing convent, she's known as a, uh, for her work uh, as a mystic, and particularly as a spiritual mentor, uh, as a spiritual director. Um, she, her writing especially has to do with, with prayer and how to direct others uh, in prayer. And she said, I just, I've got a few, um, a few quotes. She said, contemplative prayer, or what she called mental prayer, contemplative prayer is nothing else than a close sharing between friends. It means taking time frequently to be alone with Him who we know loves us. The emphasis for her was on love rather than on thought, but it was it was almost a almost a um, a Buddhist uh, emptying of oneself. It was just she would commune with God. She said she would picture Christ and picture images of Christ that she read through the scriptures. She said, "I would go to the Garden of Gethsemane with him, uh, and just spend hours with him before uh, on the night before he died." I just think that's an interesting. I've never thought of prayer like that. Um, I'm not sure I'm really comfortable with it, honestly. Um, but one thing that I do a lot of is talking to God and asking Him for things, and I don't do a lot of just listening and being with Him. And so that is a really uh, good reminder. She loved prayer so much, and she wrote, Whoever has not begun the practice of prayer, I beg for the love of the Lord not to go without so great a good. There is nothing here to fear, but only something to desire. And so she reminds me of Job in, in some ways um, because she did experience uh, extended and, and pronounced suffering and it was in that suffering that God made Himself known to her. What a comfort to us that our suffering, which all of us are going to have in one way or the other, will never be wasted. That it is always an opportunity to draw near to Christ. Because we have a Christ who has suffered and who knows that. And she, she, uh, she spent so much time, I think that's why the garden was so important to her, the Garden of Gethsemane was so important to her, because she uh, knew suffering and she knew she really went to be with Christ in that suffering. Now I think also of Psalm 139. This is our psalm last week in the, in the liturgy. One of my favorites. I won't read all of it. It's, it's kind of long, but it says, O Lord, You've searched me and You've known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and You're acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, 
Behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high and I cannot attain to it. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light around me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. And I just think of that those verses because that really seems to be Teresa's experience, that, that she trusted that even in the darkness of her own suffering, that that was light for Christ. And, um, and what, a, what a comfort and a... Conviction. Now, I hope I don't want any of you to go through suffering. I certainly don't want to go through suffering myself. But I know that whatever way we have suffered, whether it's a loss of a loved one, loss of a child or a spouse, a, a, a severe illness, um, financial, uh, whatever it is, that God will use that in your redemptively uh, in your life. That was really the whole secret. I mean, for, for Teresa, she had great gifts. I mean, she was smart, and she was faithful, and God used, put His Spirit within her and did some remarkable things. Um, she wrote a, a book that is still a, a favorite among pietists today um, called The Interior Castle, uh, which has some of the most profound insights into the spiritual life. Um, she describes the soul as a castle made entirely out of diamond or very clear crystal in which there are many rooms. Some are above, some are below, some to the sides, and in the very center and middle is the main dwelling place where the very secret exchanges between God and the soul take place. Teresa wanted to teach her readers how to enter the castle, that is, how to pray, so that they might commune more intimately with God. She was obviously very, very visual. Uh, She... She got great uh, devotion from statues and artwork and land, looking at, the, at nature and, and, um, and picturing the scene, biblical scenes um, in, her, in her mind. And she would have these like almost ecstatic, I mean not almost, she would have these ecstatic prayer experiences. Um, people would say she would, she, I mean it sounds a little legendary to me, but um, that she would almost levitate. Some people said she would uh, levitate. She was so serene. Um, that all sounds very strange uh, to me. But she was just uh, she was in love with the person of Christ. Uh, I tend to be in love with the truths of Christ, with doctrine, uh, with getting thing right, things right. And and just it has reminded me, just going back over her life, how uh, important it is just to commune with Christ. And to, to learn to do that, to be quiet, uh, to even, um, even maybe to use my imagination uh, in my prayer life, uh, picturing scenes, which um, uh, as long as I'm governed by the Scripture, I think, I think that'll be uh, all right. So that's really, uh, I, have, I mean, I've got some other things I can, I can tell you about her, but what is most remarkable to me is that she found Christ through her suffering, and that was her epiphany. 
and it wasn't just a short, like I'd love to say, well, I suffered for this. That was a hard couple of days, and, and, and Jesus uh, found me. Uh, but it was like 20 years. And, um, and remarkable to me that she kept the faith and yet moved into deeper and deeper with, uh, with Christ in such a way that she, God would prepare her in that to, to be used uh, remarkably over the next 30 years of her life. She died of illness at about 68, I think. Um, but she was, uh, she was loved and revered uh, by those under her, um, who were under her care. And um, it was all because of suffering. She, she got better, but she didn't get well, uh, so to speak. She, always had, she was always frail. Uh, and yet God used her sharp wit and intellect and leadership. She walked all over Spain, even in that condition, founding those convents. All right, I'm going to keep babbling unless you ask questions. <laughs> or, or make comments. Is she buried in Spain? Is she buried in Spain? I, I guess so. I don't, probably. I don't, I don't know that for sure. Unless she would have been moved to Rome or something. I, 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 I feel certain she probably is. There, are, there is a... Um, oh, no, I'm getting that confused. With Teresa of Calcutta, because I did some reading on her too. Um, but I'm sure there's... I would get, venture to guess that there are churches named after her and things like that. But Certainly convents. Yes? Was there a specific reason for her? Isn't it called... Well, she was associated with the miraculous. I mean, that's you have to you have to be canonized uh, in order to be canonized. As I understand it, you have to have t- sort of two verified miracles uh, in your life, and and her prayer life was was remarkable, and uh, and there were healings and things like that. She was uh, she was canonized in the 1600s, um, and made a saint, and but in 1970. She was uh, declared a doctor of the church, and that is only one other woman uh, is uh, that's Catherine of Siena is is named a doctor of the church, which is a a, rem- a remarkable title, which I can't tell you too much about. But but, um, but she was so, she was revered, and I think it was not it was her great accomplishment in founding all these convents and reforming with from within the church. Remember, we said that the Reformation, the Protestant Reformation, had a great impact on the Catholic Church and made them sort of shore up some things that were, and she was reforming from within, so she was an agent of God there, and I think that was really what was, but she was certainly attributed, had some miraculous as well. I don't have the details on those things. Mm-hmm. Other reflections? Yeah, I think so. I'm sure there. I'm sure there are relics uh, of hers. You know, I, again, I, that that kind of stuff makes me a little uh, jumpy. But um, but I, I I think what's what I what I really take from her is is her her piety, um, her her incredible love for Christ. Um, here is a woman who, uh, you know, in terms of her the way that she lives out her faith and the way I live out my faith, they're incredibly incredibly different. Um, this ascetic woman, um, and yet she was in love with the person of Jesus, and uh, and that is incredibly inspiring, I think. And I think also just the uh, the devotion through difficulty. That was her epiphany. Mm-hmm. You know, take, like, I'm thinking of our modern day Saint Teresa. 
Well, so I did some reading on Teresa of Calcutta and she, uh, Mother Teresa, and she was, she took her name, her name was, she was born Agnes, but, um, but she took her name from Teresa of Lisieux, which is a French girl, basically, she was 24, I think, when she died, um, and, and I don't, I don't know if Teresa of Lisieux was named for Teresa of Avila, I couldn't find, I looked for that, but I couldn't, I couldn't find that, also a great Catholic saint but from 150, 200 years after Teresa of Avila. Mm -hmm. You mentioned something about Carmelite nuns, and you mentioned being barefooted. What's the main difference between Carmelite and non-Carmelite nuns? Um, <laughs> I, I, don't, I have no idea. I mean, there's, I you know, there's Carmelite, there's Benedictine, there's Augustinian, there's Jesuit. I, I don't really know the difference. I know it has to do with different piety or doctrine or, or whatever. Um, I don't know what qualifies or, or who St. Carmel was. I don't know any, I don't, I don't know about that. But I do, uh, all I knew, was able to find in there was that they were not known for their strictness and she wanted to help reform within that, that people, she saw it, it wasn't so much the, the lack of strictness, but the lack of devotion that, can't, that accompanied that, that, um, that she wanted to help reform. Mm -hmm. Anything else? All right. So, well, quitting time. I hope that you will um, have ecstatic prayer experiences this week. Um, that was a joke. And, um, well, do, do. Try this. I'm going to try this. Try praying with your imagination, not, but govern it by Scripture. So read a passage of Scripture. Try it in the Gospels. That'll be the easiest thing to do. And picture Christ in that moment and just go there with Him and see what happens. See what He does. I'd love to hear about it. Next week, we'll have the annual parish meeting, so we'll take a week off. You'll have, that'll be a whole different kind of epiphany. And um, there's a lot of wonderful things. I, I, my goal in the parish meetings is not to have this boring sort of list of, of uh, budget numbers and, and arguments about uh, pennies, but, but to just to be inspiring and, and exciting for all that's going on and to celebrate all that God is doing uh, in our midst. And so I hope that you'll come and do that and um, be a part of that and see who it is. We draw out of the hat for Vestry and uh, Diocesan Convention. We'll give a short, uh, it'll be the day after our Diocesan Convention, so ask your prayers for Convention, but it'll just um, give you a little update on that as well. And then we'll be back in two weeks, and I'll be talking about Eric Little, who is the um, British runner that Chariots of Fire uh, was, was uh, about. But Chariots of Fire doesn't tell the story of what happened in his life after that. So, go in peace.